Yeah, to me, it's uh, it's just pure ignorance. And I mean, I could I could break those claims down one by one, starting with you know Pan Africanism being dead. You know, um, we just recently celebrated African um, Liberation Day. You know, and um, I was invited to participate on a panel discussion on Pan Africanism for African Liberation Day with an organization called Africans Rising. It's a Pan African organization that's based on the continent. And whenever I you know, encounter people who talk about Pan Africanism being dead, I just have to ask, well. Why is there so many Pan-African organizations, you know, throughout the diaspora and throughout the continent? Now, I mean, obviously, I've, I've made the argument that I don't think Pan-Africanism today is as strong as it used to be. And part of that is just when you look at the repression that Pan-Africanists have faced in terms of the assassination of Pan-African leaders like Malcolm X and Walter Rodney and Thomas and Carter, there was a deliberate attempt to sabotage and destroy Pan-Africanism. So I personally don't think the Pan-African movement is as strong as it has been in the past. I think Pan-Africanists are in the process of rebuilding the movement, but I certainly don't think it's dead just based on the fact that there are many Pan-African organizations and activists that it. Snow Mavis with my motherfuckers ass. You wanna know how to rhyme? You better learn how to add. It's mathematics. Mighty most definitely. It's simple mathematics. Check it out. I'll revolve around science. What are we talking about here? Peace, peace, peace. It's Rakeem with Wise Dome TV. Um, today I have a very special guest, man. Um, he's an author of over 20 books. He's written for the Huffington Post. He's an activist as well, um, scholar. Um, uh, thank you for coming on, Brother Dwayne Wong Omawale. Thank you. Indeed, indeed, man. So I like to, well, first off, um, for those who may not be familiar with your work, um, tell, uh, tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I mean, so, so like you said, I'm you know author of I'm working on number twenty actually written on nineteen well published nineteen books I'm um, working on publishing number twenty and I'm, I'm Pan African activist I've been involved in you know various different struggles of African people throughout the diaspora and throughout the continent um you mentioned I I used to write for Huffington Post and one of the things I used to do as a writer at Huffington Post would really highlight um the struggle going on in Togo which mm -hmm. is a country in West Africa which has been struggling against five decades of dictatorship so you know those are sort of um some of the, the struggles that i've been engaged in and you know trying to assist with what what i liked and and that's very powerful brother and before we even get started man we salute you and appreciate you for all the work that you do um and so uh what made you i like to start from the beginning with my guests like and see what inspired them to start doing this work and inspired them to start studying their history um what was it uh that inspired you to go down this path of you know uh teaching and writing and all in the effort to liberate um black people you know it's um it's difficult for me to pin down one thing because I, I don't think it's you know one thing i mean mm -hmm. um, one of the biggest influences has been uh my parents you know my um my father, he's the one that really introduced me into, um, well, the, the first the first book I ever read by Malcolm X was my father. He bought it for me. So he really introduced me to the civil rights movement. I'm originally from um, Guyana. So my dad also introduced me to you know, the history of Guyana, the struggle against slavery and colonialism there. Um, and then my mom, I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Walt Ronnie, who is a um, yeah. Pan-African yeah, historian activist from Guyana. She used to attend some of his rallies when she was in Guyana. So she was actively involved in that movement as well. So I get a lot of that consciousness just from, from my parents. And a lot of it was um, subconscious as well. I wasn't even necessarily, you know, fully aware of, you know, these things that uh, my parents were involved in or the things that they were introducing me to. So 
that definitely played a role. And, you know, another influence was as I just started, you know, doing more research and getting more into this history. So like I said, my dad introduced me to Malcolm X and I started really studying and researching Malcolm X. Malcolm was my first introduction to Pan-Africanism. And, you know, from there, once I got introduced to Pan-Africanism, the history of African people, I just, you know, I spent so many years doing that research, finding out more about our history and the struggles that we've been engaged in. And that was, um, but the primary motivation for me writing so many books was not just researching and finding out about this history for myself, but I really wanted to make it available and accessible to other people as well. So I you know, started writing books to get the, the history and that information out there for others. Indeed, man, and, and that's, that's amazing. So it's, it's definitely in your blood. Um, yeah. um, and, you know, when I ask people that question, you would be, well, maybe not be surprised, but it, so many people mention autobiography of Malcolm X as one of the first things that, you know, inspired them to, to you know, take this path. What do, you th what do you think it is about that work that is, has inspired so many people and so many people, you know, have found inspiration in it? Well, um, you know, for me, actually, Malcolm X Speaks was the book I read first. So I, I read mm, okay. that before the autobiography. But I think what's so special about Malcolm is when you read that, the autobiography, he's basically taking you on, you know, his journey of transformation, you know, starting out being um, Detroit Red and going to prison and, you know, just the reformation in prison. So I think Malcolm is unique in our history in the sense that, you know, when you look at his um, autobiography and so many of the, you know, our leaders in the past never actually wrote autobiography. So you're getting Malcolm's story, you know, uh, more or less from Malcolm, although Alex Haley did play a role in the autobiography as well. So I think, you know, that's what makes his autobiography so powerful that people really get to see just, you know, the things that inspired Malcolm and the things that caused his transformation. And, you know, the fact that Malcolm, the, the type of person he was that, you know, he, after he left prison, he joined the Nation of Islam. But even within the Nation of Islam, he's constantly growing, developing new political ideologies. And after he leaves the Nation of Islam, he's continue, continuously developing. So I, I think, you know, for me personally, I think it's true for a lot of people. What we connect with, with Malcolm as well is just, um, the fact that he was constantly growing, constantly working to improve himself. And I, I know for me, that's one of the biggest lessons I've taken um, from Malcolm, not just to, to never be complacent uh, with where you are in your development, to constantly keep learning more, to constantly keep trying to, you know, d develop your consciousness to a uh, higher level. I think, you know, that's what Malcolm really embodied. Yeah, indeed. And I agree. And so that leads me to, to ask you about this. I know recently, um, you were on a panel uh, with some powerful brothers and sisters that were building on um, the topic of if Abrahamic religions hindered African liberation. And, um, and since then, I have seen uh, some posts and tweets about, um, you know, one, for instance, was um, about Malcolm and saying that if he would have lived long enough, he would have eventually uh, left Islam and others um, that, you know, about Elijah Muhammad being a self-serving religious leader. Um, and so on the topic of Abrahamic faiths, um, do they hinder uh, our liberation from how you see it? I mean, perspective, it's a very, uh, it's a very complicated topic because I mean, obviously we could point to brothers and sisters who practice Abrahamic religions, who engage in behaviors that hinder 
or liberation. But on the other hand, you have people like Malcolm. So my position on Abrahamic religions has always been, I never tried to generalize or look at these religions in a general way. And you know, how I understand it is Malcolm was a Muslim, but that didn't take away from him being a Pan-African um, nationalist and being an activist. So what I came to realize, and when I was in that um, that panel discussion, I made the point that there is no correlation between a person's religious beliefs and their willingness to struggle and sacrifice for African people. So you have people like Malcolm X, who was a Muslim, you have people like Marcus Garvey or, or Harry Tubman, who are Christians, and they really fought for our people. So you know, to, to me, I don't really like getting into the religious debate, just because, as I said, I don't see that connection. We have so many brothers and sisters who practice Abrahamic religions, who really struggled and helped to advance the African struggle. And obviously, on the other end of that, we do have people who practice the Abrahamic religions. And um, you know, one of the topics that was mentioned in that panel discussion was obviously the, the type of Islamic extremism that we see going on in Nigeria. Now, to me, that's, a, that's an example of Abrahamic religion hindering yeah. African people when you have Muslims going out there and you know, killing and massacring other people in the name of their religion. I'm completely opposed to that. But at the same time, I think, I think it's incomplete to say that Boko Haram is the representation of Islam in the African struggle and to leave out the contributions of Malcolm X and mm -hmm. um, Elijah Muhammad and other Muslims. So to me, I, I think a very balanced approach in understanding that ultimately, you know, religions that it might be tools. So, you know, a, a person might become a, a Muslim and what Islam means to them is you know, separate from what Islam means to another person. So to me, I, I don't look at the religions as a whole in that sense. I look at, you know, religions in a very specific manner and what i mean by that is it's specific to the individual what what is this individual who's practicing islam or christianity really doing with those religions and you know i can't say that malcolm would have left islam at some point in his life just because you know something that comes across in his autobiography and throughout the speeches was that islam was very deeply uh, personal to him and you know as i mentioned he was in prison and islam played a role in his uh, transformation and throughout his life his his, his spiritual and re religious beliefs played a very strong role in everything that he was doing. And as I said, that was you know, very deeply personal to Malcolm. And um, you know, some people might be Christians and Christianity might play a, a very personal, uh, inspiring or transformational uh, role in that individual's life. And you know, to me, I, I have no choice but to you know, re respect that because obviously you know, if Islam could transform Malcolm X and make him into the person he was or if Christianity could inspire Marcus Garvey to, you know, be the type of individual he was. And, you know, to me, I, that's not something I, you know, feel that is very uh, useful or practical to, to condemn. And, you know, in the panel discussion, actually, I made this point that um, if we were on the slave plantations and Harriet Tubman came to, to liberate us, we wouldn't stop and argue with Harriet Tubman over her religious beliefs, right. law, freedom, you know, right behind her. So to me, the, to, it, to me the, the, all these uh, arguments and discussions about religion ultimately kind of meaningless in, in the grand scheme of you know, African liberation struggle because we're not struggling for particular religions. We're not struggling against religion, uh, religion per se. We're struggling for our liberation. And um, I often make this point too because you know, we, tend to, we tend to talk about how Christianity and Islam are enslaved and subjugated African people. And I have to make the point that these are belief systems. Belief systems don't act or operate on their own. So it's not that Christianity enslaved African people is that Europeans who are practicing Christianity enslaved yeah. African people or that Arabs who are practicing Islam you know, enslaved African people. I think we also have a tendency to type, kind of mystify religions and make them into more powerful forces than they are. But I mean, the fact is religions don't exist independent of human acti activity or human behaviors. Right. And, uh, and so would you say that 
like uh, in certain cases, whether it was the trans-Saharan uh, slave trade or the transatlantic slave trade, that religion was only a like a tool, like meaning like if they were of another religion, if they were Zoroastrianism or whatever, you know what I'm saying? The fact that they wanted to enslave Africans for a certain purpose, they would have used whatever their spiritual system was to justify it. Yeah, I mean, I made the point in the panel discussion as well. When you look at European history, Europeans were trying to colonize the world and conquer other people before Christianity. You know, when you look at what Alexander the Great was doing or when you look at the Roman Empire. So that desire for global conquest was there among Europeans even before Christianity. And when Europeans adopted Christianity, obviously Christianity became a justification. But you know, as I was saying earlier, to me, I look at how the religions are being used and what was... Um, a particularly interesting, I've, you know, I've written about this example of um, Sam Sharp, who led a, led a very massive um, slave rebellion mm -hmm. in Jamaica, and he was a Christian. So here we had a situation where European slave masters in Jamaica were using the Christian Bible as a justification for enslaving African people. And then you had someone like Sam Sharp who reads the same Bible, and he, can, he comes to the conclusion that nowhere in the Bible does God give Europeans the right to enslave African people. So... You know, that, that, that's always my approach to religion, that when you look at just the, the struggles in slavery, you'll find, obviously, Europeans using the Bible to justify enslaving Africans, but you'll find people like Sam Sharp or people like Nat Turner who read that same Bible and use that Bible as an inspiration to fight for their liberation. Most definitely, most definitely. I, and I agree. I feel like if you are, um, if your goal is freedom, justice and equality and black liberation, then you'll be able to find inspiration in a lot of things, no matter what your system of belief is, you know, um, and I do understand a lot. I mean, where the sentiment of it possibly hinders us um, as far as our liberation comes from, because we do see like in today's times where, um, you know, the colonization of African minds through um, religions where they demonize African religions or, or indigenous, you know, uh, spiritual systems. But at the same time, I, I, I agree with you in the sense that we have to take these things on a case by case basis. Um, we can't, I mean, like you said, we see the, we see uh, people like uh, Sam Sharp and Nat Turner, who and even um, Harriet Tubman, who they called Moses, see an Exodus story and say, "Hey, you know that looks that reminds me of what we're going through." I, I'm inspired to get free from this, compared to you know religion how we see it today. And so I, I definitely agree. I, I feel like it's a case by case basis, and um, and so. With you being such a well-read brother, um, and you have a lot of works online, um, I did a, um, you know, I was reading some of your articles um, throughout the weekend, so I, I have a few different questions about a few different topics. So uh, forgive me if we jump around a little bit, but, um, you know, we got to pick your brain, man, while you're here. <laughs> so um, one article you you wrote was um, an article about uh, Queen Charlotte, and it was entitled, uh, was Queen Charlotte Black? And, uh, you know, shows on Netflix like Bridgerton and Jerry Rogers' Sex and Race, and even um, Hidden Colors, 
um, portrayed her as black. And um, I found it to be a, a very, a very important article because in it you talk about, and these are in your words, um, how it may reinforce a Eurocentric outlook of history um, by suggesting that, Af that Africans must seek validation in their history, in the history of others rather than their own history and culture. And uh, I think that's a powerful sentiment because I've never looked at it like that. And you know, like a lot of J.A. Rogers' volume, uh, Sex and Race, Volume One and Three was him, you know, and I'm not saying, and I'm, this is not a knock on him because we appreciate the uh, ancestor for everything that he did and gave us. But within the book, I see a lot of that where, um, you know, he's saying they had a, they had, you know, African blood in them going back to their grandparents. So, you know, this person may be black. And then even now with the show Bridgerton, like we see it, right? So, um, if you can, I want you to speak on that sentiment. Um, first, was Queen Charlotte Black? Um, I want you and and um, why and if you can expound on the fact that um, how you know looking at things through this lens um, is somewhat seeking validation through white history. Yeah, so I mean that, that's a complicated question, and you know the, the first issue with that is how are we defining black? Because obviously, if we're looking at it from the American context, there's one drop rule. So, I mean, you know, to me, the first issue with determining whether or not Queen Charlotte was black was her ancestry. And when you look at, you know, her, her lineage, as far as we know, I, I don't really see this, you know, African um, ancestry comes into the picture. Uh, obviously, people have made different claims that she had some kind of distant black ancestor somewhere. And I mean, personally, I haven't been able to verify this, but Assuming now she did have some kind of distant African ancestry or, you know, um, you know, some African DNA along the way. And then the next question is, are we applying the one drop rule? Because, I mean, obviously, when you look at the portraits of her, that's a white woman. I mean, mm -hmm. there's no getting around it. So people who argue that she's black are really trying to apply the one drop rule. And my issue with that is, you know, just look at her position in society. She was a woman who married in the the British monarchy. Her, um, her husband, King George III, he opposed um, the abolition movement. In other words, he was fine with slavery and he opposed every attempt to you know, end slavery. So, you know, here's a woman who phenotypically outwardly looks like a white European woman. She's able to marry into the highest, you know, uh, level of European society. And she's married into a man who's built an entire global empire off of enslaving and oppressing African people. And he opposes the end of slavery. So to me, by what standard can we say a woman like this is a black woman if she doesn't look black? if she's married into a white supremacist structure, if she's benefiting from this white supremacist structure, is she black in the sense that an uh, enslaved woman in the Caribbean or enslaved woman in the United States is black? You know, is her experience the same experience as a woman living on the slave plantations mm -hmm. who was being beaten, being raped, having to watch her husband being beaten, having her children ripped away from her on the auction block? Is, is that the same experience as Queen Charlotte? So to me, even if we can establish that she had some type of African ancestry, I still struggle to find how we can say she's black in a social sense when obviously she's married into a white supremacist institution and she was benefiting from the suffering and the enslavement of African people. To me, you know, she, she's, she's not black. And you know, I've written about situations where um, individuals who were actually black intermarried with white people and after a few generations, their descendants not only became white, but their descendants became white slave, uh, slave owners. So again, it goes back to are we so applying such a strict definition of the one drop rule that a white slave owner 
who may have you know a distant African ancestor four or five generations ago, is that white slave master just as black as the black people that he, he has enslaved? Right. Yeah, so, so to me, I think. Yeah, so, so to me, I think, you know, a strict definition of the one drop rule just after a while, it becomes very ridiculous, you know, if we start trying to claim people mm -hmm. who were, were white supremacist and racist. Yeah, we could take the average white man now and give him a DNA test and you might see 3% African, but he's not, he's definitely not going to consider himself a black man. <laughs> yeah. Um, as, but as, if you can, what about the sentiment of why we even care if, um, Queen Charlotte is black. And like you said, suggesting that um, Africans must seek validation in the history of others rather than looking at our own history and culture. I felt like that was a, a very powerful sentiment. Can you expound on that some? Yeah, I mean, the questions you ask, why should we care? Me personally, I don't care because, you know, as I said, even if we can establish that Queen Charlotte had African ancestry, what did she do for African people? Like I said, she married into the British monarchy, your husband was a man who opposed any attempts to end slavery. So, you know, to me, if I'm looking at our history and I'm trying to pick from our history things that are meaningful, why not look at Queen Zingas and get the same recognition and attention that Queen Charlotte does? So, and I made the same point with um, Cleopatra. So many of us will get into these arguments trying to prove that, you know, Cleopatra with an African, a black African woman. And my issue with that is when you look at uh, Cleopatra's history, first of all, the reason why she's so memorable in history and the reason why she stands out above so many other um, women who ruled in the ancient Kemet was the fact that she was aligned with um, with European history. You know, Caesar, she was having affairs with um, Caesar and she was very connected to, to Greece and to um, you know, the, the European civilization. At the time, so one of the things I started to notice was that you know many of us seek to find our history in figures who were very uh, predominant in European history, and then we seek to try to find some kind of distant African ancestry, whether it be in culture or Charlotte. And then it just occurred to me that um we have you know so many great kings and queens in our African civilization that many of us simply do not know about. Um, yeah, Santo, who you know, I would argue is one of the most brilliant military commanders in the history of Africa. Why don't enough of us know about her history? Why why aren't there Netflix series about her and her struggle against British colonialism? So, you know, to me it seems very counterproductive for African people to engage in this um this game of looking at different uh, white people or mixed people in history and trying to figure out how much African ancestry had they had if they had any African ancestry, when we have so many, you know, great uh, kings and queens in our history that there was no question who they were racially, culturally, politically, or um, socially. So, you know, to, to me, that's, that's where it becomes an issue. Not only, you know, the stuff I raised before about the problem with applying a very strict um, understanding of the one drop rule, but also are we, you know, when, when I see a situation where it seems like we're elevating Queen Charlotte above Nzinga or Yasawa, mm -hmm. Or many of your know, African queens, it seems like we're only doing so because of her place in European history. So it's almost um, like, we're, like I said, we're validating ourselves through finding someone who's very pro prominent in European history and claiming that she was one of us because she may have had a different African ancestry. And you know, another issue as well with that is, and uh, you know, I made this point uh, very often in my, my writings about the Queen Charlotte situation that even if she did have African ancestry never claimed to be an African or a black woman mm. as well. So, you know, what type, what type of message are we sending to, you know, children, for example, when we teach them this history that, you know, Charlotte was a black queen, but she didn't look like you, nor did she even claim an identification mm. 
we, right. you know, to me, I think, I mean, I understand why people are doing it because we're, we are people who robbed of our history and it's created a lot of self-esteem issues in us. So a lot of us are trying to find, you know, a, a sense of pride and a sense of self-identity in history. And I just think that approach of trying to find, you know, our contributions to European history or trying to find European leaders and monarchs that have had African ancestry is actually counterproductive and it's probably more damaging to the self-esteem of African people to make us think that we can only validate our history through Europe rather than looking at our own African history and our own African uh, leaders for validation. Word. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I, I never uh, I never thought about it like that, but whenever you raised the point in that article, I mean, it made so much sense because in, in actuality, that's exactly what we're doing. We're looking for, um, we're validating ourselves through uh, uh, you know their heroes and their and their monarchs and their and it, we have our own kingdoms that we should be highlighting and so I definitely agree with that. Um, and you made a post the other day about uh, um, the myth of European explorers, right, who came to America and them and they described seeing black people. Right. And so I know that with a lot of uh, the different movements that we have coming out. Um, especially here in North America, um, where people are wanting to distance themselves from Africa. So they, um, you know, start these movements that say that they are the indigenous Americans and they have nothing to do with Africa and things of that nature, right? Um, for, and, you know, most of the time they will never take a DNA test. And so, but they'll use, um, they'll use, uh, you know, talking points such as this um, that, hey, you know, when um, European explorers came to America um, in their, in their, uh, uh, in their, in the books that they wrote and the, and their eyewitness accounts, they, you know, they described seeing Black people. Um, what are your thoughts on that whenever they say that? And um, if you can, just get into that a little bit, because I think that's, I think that was a, I'm, you know, I'm really interested in hearing what you have to say just, and I, and I kind of know what you're already going to say somewhat, but it has to be said because this is one of the talking points that is used for people with African blood to deny that they have African blood. Yes, I think, you know, to me, the first issue with that, and I I see that claim a lot, but the issue is they always talk about these European explorers, and the question is, who are they talking about? It's always these vague European explorers, and it's never um, any, you know, specific examples, and, um, you know, when when you look at uh, Christopher Columbus, for example, when you read his journals, and he's describing the Native people that he met, he specifically says they're neither Black nor White, so, you know, as you go into, um, you know, the journals of these different European explorers, what you find is, when they do describe the native people that they're encountering, they don't really describe them as being black. And um, there's uh, one explorer, Vasco uh, Balboa, he, he describes, he actually does describe seeing black people in the Americas. And, um, but it was shocking to him because it was very unusual to see, you know, these black people and the context in which he saw them was they were um, prisoners, they were, you know, they were prisoners of the native people. So he was trying to inquire as to how these black people got there and the native people themselves, they said they didn't know. And um, some of the speculation of the you know, later Spanish historians was that perhaps these were Africans who were shipwrecked in um, the, the Americas. And you know, why I bring that up is because where European explorers do mention seeing black people in the Americas, it was very unusual for them because you know, typically the people that they saw throughout the Americas did not look black. And, um, and I referenced, uh, they came before 
Columbus by Ivan Van Sertima, who I think a lot of these claims about black people being indigenous in America, I think, comes from the work he was doing. And he was trying to argue that before Christopher Columbus had arrived in the Americas, African people had you know, managed to sail to the Americas as well. But I think you know, people who haven't read his work or are trying to misrepresent his work for their own purposes miss the fact that he wasn't arguing that African people or black people were indigenous to the Americas. He was arguing that people of African descent had left the continent and had explored the Americas before um, Columbus. And I've been somewhat critical of his work as well, just because I think when you look at you know, the primary sources of history, it's very difficult to find you know, uh, historical proof to back up what he was saying. For example, he argued that the Egyptians you know, sailed to the Americas and influenced the Olmec civilization. But the thing is, when you look at Egyptian history, you don't really find any um, evidence of an exploration or even an attempt to send out an expedition to the Americas in Egyptian history. Um, Mali is, is unique because the, uh, the king of Mali, Abu Bakr, he actually did um, engage in an expedition to sail the Atlantic Ocean. But again, we run into historical issues here where he never came home. So people, you know, his people didn't really know what became of him. Now, it's possible that he could have, you know, sailed to the Americas, but my position is we simply don't know. And I think, um, you know, when you read Ivan Van Sertum's work, he makes the argument that Abu Bakr actually did uh, arrive in the Americas. And my position on it is we just, we simply don't have the evidence to know. So, you know, my view on this is I'm not completely dismissive of, you know, this idea that Africans had, you know, were able to, you know, sail to the Americas before Columbus or were, you know, in the process of, Exploring, you know, I think that's possible. But my issue is that when people claim that black, you know, black people are indigenous to the Americas, I, I don't, I don't think that's true. And just I mean, when you look at the historical sources, as I said, when European explorers came to the Americas, they weren't describing, you know, black African people and where they saw, you know, black people. It was shocking to them because black people were in the minority. Wow. Um, two things. Uh, yes, because even if Abu Bakr made it. Right, that doesn't mean that we are indigenous to America. You know what I mean? And yeah, you and if let's say he left with two hundred people, they would have got swallowed up by whatever indigenous population that they became a part of. Um, and two, uh, who was the explorer that um that said that they saw uh, um, black prisoners? Vasco uh, Balboa, when he was among the native people, he saw that they had um, some some uh, black black prisoners, and it was uh, Peter uh, Martyr who um, he was a Spanish historian who he later speculated that um, the reason why those black people were there they they were probably shipwrecked from um, Ethiopia is how he described it. Now Ethiopia was a general term referring to to Africa, but um, so you know that, that was rather interesting too because. The Spanish who saw these black people there, they didn't really know why those black people there were there, how they got there. And the natives didn't know either. So, you know, it's a very interesting situation where we do have black people in the Americas and no one really knew how they got there. So the speculation was that they probably got shipwrecked, which I think, you know, is very likely, uh, you know, mm-hmm. as, as I said, Abu Bakr, he never returned back home, back home. So if he made it to the Americas, he was basically, you know, uh, stuck there. Right. And uh, yeah, uh, that's definitely something I want to research some more because I had um I had never I had never read that I've read I've I read Columbus's journals where you know he described seeing dark skinned people but everybody is dark skinned when it compared to Europeans. Um, but um, so another thing um, and kind of staying in the same um, line of thinking here, uh, you know, with those same movements that are popping up. Um, 
that are, you know, some are not necessarily saying that we're indigenous to Americas, but um, some groups that are centered around reparations, um, which obviously is a good thing. Um, but these groups are uh, striving to cut themselves off from the rest of the diaspora and the continent and, you know, say things such as uh, Pan-Africanism is dead. And, you know, I've been keeping a close eye on these movements and they gain a lot of steam in certain, in certain you know, uh, groups of people, man. And uh, I don't understand it. I don't get it. Um, I'm not going to say their name. I don't want to give them any light. Um, but um, what are you? What are your thoughts whenever you hear things such as Pan African is Pan Africanism is, is dead. Pan Africanism has never done anything for anybody. It's, and here's another one that I hear a lot: that Pan African Pan Africanism is one sided, meaning um, we only you know find it viable here in America, but on the continent you know, people don't think like that and they don't care. Like for somebody that has, you know, done the work um, and, you know, obviously the research as well, um, what are your thoughts whenever you hear stuff like that? Yeah, to me, it's, uh, it's just pure ignorance. And I mean, I could, I could break those claims down one by one, starting with, you know, Pan-Africanism being dead. You know, um, we just recently celebrated African um, Liberation Day, you know, and, um, I was invited to participate on a panel discussion on Pan-Africanism for African Liberation Day with an organization called Africans Rising. It's a Pan-African organization that's based on the continent. And whenever I you know, encounter people who talk about Pan-Africanism being dead, I just have to ask, well, why is there so many Pan-African organizations you know, throughout the diaspora and throughout the continent? Now, I mean, obviously I've, I've made the argument that I don't think Pan-Africanism today is as strong as it used to be. And part of that is just when you look at the repression that Pan-Africanists have faced in terms of the assassination of Pan-African leaders like Malcolm X and Walter Rani and Thomas and Carter, there was a deliberate attempt to sabotage and destroy Pan-Africanism. So I personally don't think the Pan-African movement is as strong as it has been in the past. I think Pan-Africanists are in the process of rebuilding the movement, but I certainly don't think it's dead just based on the fact that there are many Pan-African organizations and activists that you know, exist throughout the African world. Um, in terms of you know people who ask, was Pan-Africanism done? My issue with that question, it, it, it kind of frames the discussion of, around Pan-Africanism as being a very vague and mm -hmm. abstract idea. And to me, it's more accurate to ask what have Pan-Africanists done because Pan-Africanism doesn't just exist as you know, a vague um, idea. The, the Pan-Africanism was advanced by you know, particular leaders. Obviously, we spoke about Malcolm X. We can talk about the achievements of Marcus Garvey, Kwame Nkrumah, Thomas Sankara. Maurice Bischoff, and I could just go on and on about, you know, great Pan-African leaders have really made important contributions to the advancement and the liberation of African people. So to me, it's not a question of, you know, what has Pan-Africanism done? It's a question of what have Pan-Africanists achieved? And I think, you know, given the circumstances and everything that African people have struggled against, Pan-Africanists have really achieved a lot. And, you know, as I said, there was a very deliberate attempt to destroy the global Pan-African movement. Now, obviously, that wasn't done because Pan-Africanism was irrelevant. You know, Malcolm X and these Pan-African leaders were seen as very serious threats to you know, the dominant Western powers in the world. And then this whole thing about Pan-Africanism being one-sided, I mean, to me, I never, you would really have to not understand the history of the African struggle to think it's been one-sided. And I mean, just, just look at the history of the African struggle in the United States. I mean, you, have, you had people like Denmark Vesey and Robert Campbell who were born in the Caribbean who came to America and assisted Black Americans in the struggle. Um, 
Booker T. Washington, you know, people aren't even aware of the type of support that Booker T. Washington had among Africans on the continent. Obviously, Marcus Garvey, Kwame Toure, these were individuals who were born in the, you know, the Caribbean and came to the United States with the struggle. And even just, you know, in a, in a present day um, context in the struggles that I've been engaged in, I mentioned earlier about the struggle in Togo, some of the Pan-Africanists that I've been working with in Togo, their goal is not just to liberate Togo from dictatorship, their goal is to create a type of um, situation in Togo, like we had in Haiti. You know, I don't know how many people are aware of this, but at one point after the revolution in Haiti, Haiti had a policy in place which said any person of African ancestry, regardless of where you're born, could be regarded as a Haitian citizen. So there were Black Americans who actually left the United States and went to Haiti and became you know, a citizen. So I work with activists in Togo whose vision is the same sort of thing in Togo. They want to liberate Togo. And they also want to liberate Togo, not just for the Togolese, but for Black Americans and other people from the diaspora who want to return home. So, you know, their vision is, you know, sort of what Israel has, a uh, right of return. You know, these Pan-African activists in Togo want the same sort of thing. So, you know, to me, it's, it's somewhat frustrating when I see um, people who aren't actually actively involved in these Pan-African struggles talk about how Pan-Africanism is one-sided. And usually part of that conversation is... Look how difficult it is for you know Black Americans to get citizenship in African countries, and to me, why it's frustrating is because as someone who's actively involved in these African struggles to make it easier for you know Africans in the diaspora to get citizenship, I almost feel like why complain about the issue if you're not going to be part of the discussion? And that, you know, to me, I think maybe it's a Pan-Africanism. I always ask them if you think you know Pan-Africanism is dead or irrelevant, what's the alternative that you're bringing to the table? You know, what's the solution? To, you know, to me, it makes no sense to criticize if you're not going to bring an alternative. And Marcus Garvey, um, you know, he, he, he once said that, you know, you sh we should pay no attention to a man who criticizes if the man can't show where he's doing better than what it is that he's criticizing. And I think in the age of social media, criticism has become much more easier than it's ever been. And, you know, that, that, to me, that it becomes, you know, like I said, kind of frustrating when you see people who, who aren't engaged in these issues complaining about things that they're not assisting with and criticizing things that they're not involved in and criticizing movements that they have no intention of uh, supporting or improving. And, you know, to me, that, to me that's, that's the biggest issue that I see. I see the, the movement that you're talking about, I see it as largely being a social media yeah. movement where there are certain people that have built very large platforms on YouTube mm -hmm. and Twitter or Facebook or where, whatever, whichever social media platform. But when you look at actual, you know, tangible organization, tangible institutions, I don't see those things being built. But I see, you know, like I said, I see a lot of criticisms of Pan-Africanists who are trying to build these things. Right. Um, yeah, so to, to me, it's very frustrating to deal with people who are very intent on criticizing without offering a better solution or an alternative. No, I agree. And you're right. A lot of it is to build their platform, right? And once their platform is built, um, then, you know, it's a way to get money, right? And so, I mean there's always a need for us to have platforms where we use to educate and, and, you know, inspire people, which is what I strive to do here, but in no way am I trying to um, mislead the people. Um, everything I do is to liberate our people. And when I see some of these, some of these groups, I don't see, I don't see liberation. I see, and, and, I'm, and like I said, I understand the need for reparations, right? Um, but in the, but that's, that's a short-term thing for me, how I see it, because I don't necessarily think that we can ever achieve, um, true freedom, justice, and, and, uh, quality in a system of 
white capitalism in America. You know what I mean? And so I'm not, I don't want to base my objective and my, and my, and my need for liberation on how big a check they can give me. You know what I'm saying? So like, what, what are your thoughts on that? Cause I know we need reparations and that's, yeah. I'm not saying we don't, you know what I mean? I mean, my, my, my thoughts on that is I think some of us run into this issue of seeing reparations as being the ultimate solution. And, you know, I, I don't even have to look at this, the reparation situation in the United States. I'll use the Caribbean as an example, because I'm sure you're aware that, you know, Caribbean governments have been calling for reparations. And, you know, one of the issues I've been involved in over the years is um, the situation in Barbuda. That, that island was um, ravaged by a hurricane a few years ago. And what's interesting about the island of Barbuda is that the Africans there maintained the African tradition of communal land ownership, different private land ownership, and the land is owned in common. And the situation there is after the hurricane hit, the island is you know, in a very vulnerable position. So the prime minister of Antigua and Barbuda, Gaston Brown, was kind of moving to dismantle that um, the tradition of communal land ownership to privatize the island so that you know uh, foreign companies can come in and you know privatize industries and basically take away ownership of the land from the, the native people who live there. But he's also one of the Caribbean leaders that's calling for uh, reparation. So in the Caribbean, we see this contradiction of Caribbean leaders who are calling for reparations while upholding neocolonial right. policies. And, you know, the brothers and sisters who are fighting for reparations in the United States need to be very careful of the fact that fighting for reparations within a colonial or capitalist or imperialist context isn't really progress for you know, our, our people because you can get... I mean, we, we see this with Native Americans. Native Americans have gotten certain, certain forms of uh, reparations in terms of, you know, settle, uh, you know land settlements and um, those sort, sort of things. So we've even seen situations where the United States is willing to give reparations, but still maintain people in a state of oppression. I mean, the Japanese were given reparations, and we saw recently the United States felt they need to pass an anti-Asian um, hate, uh, hate bill. So the thing is, why didn't reparation solve the issue of uh, racism against Asian people? So I think we have to be very careful of um, trying to think that reparations itself is a solution. And, you know, the other point about reparations is, if we're being honest, if the United States paid the type of reparations that really owed Black Americans, the entire system would collapse. And the same thing is true for European countries. If they really gave, you know, everything that is due to the people that they oppressed, the whole thing would collapse. So I think we have to keep in mind, too, reparations that, the United States and these European powers didn't what's due because it's not even in their self-interest to do so. It would you know, be very detrimental for them to do it. So if we do get reparations from um, these nations, obviously it's going to be the type of reparations that's going to maintain the status quo. And you know, like I said, with the, with the Japanese and with Native Americans, we've seen certain, certain groups that got reparations, but it was done in a way that still upheld the racist um, status quo. So for me, I think we have to go beyond reparations, especially, I think, you know, some of us have very limited views of reparations as it is. I see, you know, yeah. one of the common slogans is, um, cut the check. I mean, obviously, <laughs> you know, to me, your check is not, <laughs> right. that's not the type of reparations that, you know, we, we need. And, um, you know, there's a situation right here in Orlando that was, um, uh, you know, a few years ago, I attended um, the, the, uh, the establishment of a memorial for a man named July Perry who was lynched and his land was stolen. And, you know, I was at a ceremony and, I mean, to me, I could, I could appreciate the fact that he's, you know, getting recognition for, um, for being, you know, the, the victim of such a, a heinous injustice. But at the same time, I was, you know, asking questions about, yeah, he's got a marker now when we acknowledge that what was done to him was wrong, but do his descendants get the land that was taken from him? And so, you know, to me, I think 
for reparations, we obviously have to go beyond thinking of reparations in terms of a check or money and look at things like the land, the land that was stolen from black Americans, you know, here in this country, you know, how, how do we get those things back? And, you know, as I said, understanding that, um, you know, reparations, it's not, it's not going to be something that the United States is just going to hand over. And yeah, like I said, if they do, it's going to be done in a way to uphold racist, racist status quo. So I think we have to look at reparations in a, you know, very, a very revolutionary uh, way that, you know, that seeks to strive towards the liberation of African people rather than thinking of reparations in terms of just taking a check and continuing to live under the capitalist system as it is. And I think, you know, just for many of us, we don't connect reparations with a struggle towards um, revolu revolutionary liberation. And that's why I gave the example of the Caribbean that, you know, we have Caribbean leaders that are perfectly willing to uphold the you know, system, but are still asking for reparations. So I think reparations needs to be done in a way that's very revolutionary rather than being done in a way that's still going to uphold the same oppressive system that we have. No, yeah, I, I agree. And because so we've seen the history of this nation and we see that within that history, they don't honor treaties, they don't honor promises, they don't they won't even apologize for the injustices that they commit amongst black people and indigenous people. So I don't really understand why, and I'm not saying for people that who actually are um, dedicating their lives for that fight in a real way, not on the social media, disconnecting themselves from the rest of the diaspora, not those groups, but there are other groups before them. And I'm not knocking anybody that is fighting for that because like I said, you know, if that's what they, if, if that's what they, uh, if that's what their fight is, then that's what their fight is. But I just don't see in the history of America, I don't I don't see them, I just don't see what would make them what would make them do that, what would make them close a racial wealth gap that they created off of the backs of black people during slavery. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, we're we're still struggling. To, to get, I mean, you look at Georgia and, and places like that where they are, you know, doing things to, to you know, make it harder to vote, right? And we're talking about yeah. the check. Like, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't yeah. know. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I think we have to look at the history as well, you know, um, and you were talking about Georgia and what they're doing with the voting rights. And I think, you know, a lot of us, when we think of the civil rights movement, we think of that was the movement where Black people in America got the right to vote. And I think, a lot of us forgot or forget or don't even understand that black people had the right to vote during the Reconstruction era. That's why there were so many black people elected to office. Mm -hmm. And obviously those rights were stripped away and then you had a civil rights movement. So I think we have to be careful about getting ourselves in a situation where every few generations we're fighting for the same rights over and over and mm -hmm. we get trapped in a cycle of fighting for rights, winning them and then losing them and have to fight, you know, fight for them again. So I think understanding our history is important, important in that way. I think, you know, a lot of us really don't, appreciate the reconstruction era for you know the, the gains that were being made and why those gains were taken away and how we've had to fight for hence again but the other thing that i think we need to keep in mind as well and you know malcolm made this point that um you know europeans only understand one type of language and that's the language of violence and the history of the united states shows that i mean when we talk about the abolition of slavery that didn't happen peacefully that took a whole civil war just to get slavery ended and um civil rights i think we also have to be very careful about how we approach history because so many of us think of, you know, civil rights as, well, Black people marched and sang, we shall overcome, and took beatings from police officers, and eventually it felt bad and gave Black people civil rights. And it tends to ignore 
part of the riot, mass you know protests and uprisings that really influenced that. Malcolm X made the point that what really you know got John F. Kennedy involved in um, civil rights wasn't the peaceful uh, protesting; it was um, the rioting that was happening in Birmingham. That's when you know John F. Kennedy really you know took a stand on the civil rights. So I think you know Malcolm was very clear on the fact that even within the civil rights movement, you know. Certain political leaders only became interested when they realized that if we don't give black people civil rights, nonviolent, you know, uh, peaceful protesting could quickly turn violent. And Malcolm, you know, he also made the point that um, the Nation of Islam made uh, the civil rights movement more accessible to white America because white America viewed civil rights as being extreme until they saw the Nation of Islam, and then they realized that you know these right. people. It's much better to deal with the nonviolent, you know, moderates, black civil rights leader, than to deal with the Nation of Islam. And then obviously after the nation of Islam, we saw the Republic of New Africa and the Black Panther Party. So I think, you know, when we talk about civil rights, I think we tend to forget that at one point the moderate civil rights leaders were actually viewed as being too radical until more nationalistic and more militant black organizations came on the scene. And then those same civil rights leaders kind of became more acceptable. So I, I, I say this to make the point that even when we look at civil rights, it was just a nonviolent movement. There was always a violent alternative lurking underneath that nonviolence. And the United States government was so willing to deal with Dr. King and willing to deal with others because they didn't want the alternative. They didn't want to deal with the Black Panther Party or Nation of Islam or, or, or other organizations that had rejected nonviolence and took the approach of, if you're going to brutalize, brutalize us, we're going to fight back. And the third example that we'll give, and, you know, this is not something that I've seen too many people, you know, really focus on, but it caught my attention. I don't know if you, uh, you've noticed this, but um, no, you, you remember when Obama was uh, president and they had the, the massive rioting in Ferguson and Baltimore? Yes. And one of the things that I noticed is that after the rioting in Ferguson and in Baltimore, the Department of Justice uh, investigated the police uh, departments in both cities and came out with a report talking about the, the systemic racism in those police departments. Mm -hmm. uh, what occurred to me is that if it wasn't for the rioting in Ferguson and if it wasn't for the rioting in Baltimore, mm -hmm. I don't know if the Obama administration would have done that investigation. So, mm -hmm. you know, the reason I mentioned this is just to, to make the point that just to get the government to investigate racism in the police department, it takes black people going out in the streets and burning down buildings and mm -hmm. destroying cars and doing that, you know, that sort of thing. So if it takes that to get the government to even start investigating racism in the police department, what do you think it's going to take for the government to give us reparations? I think it's very important to understand the history of the black American struggle and to understand that, you know, you know, as Malcolm said, these people only you know, understand one type of language and that's the language of mm -hmm. violence. I think, you know, I mentioned, I think just have to be very clear that we're dealing with the fact that the United States has never done anything for black people unless there was, you know, some kind of threat of a, a rebellion or um, violence. I think, you know, that's something that we need to keep in mind. I think, you know, too many of us think that we can get change done by, you know, voting and, you know, th that sort of thing. And the system isn't even designed, you know, in that way. And um, not just for black people, you know, we can look at, just look at what the United States uh, government and what the system is doing to poor white people and how oppressed the poor white people are. So if this is a racist system that's willing to oppress other white people, you know, what, you know, how much sympathy are they going to have for us when we, you know, peacefully, you know, ask for these things? I just, I just make the point that I think we need to really study history to understand what it is that we're up against and understand that the type of system that we're dealing with isn't a system that's ever, you know, given into peaceful or nonviolent demands. No, exactly. And that reminded me of, do you remember when, um, 
um, John Lewis died and uh, Bill Clinton at the funeral was like, you know, we love John Lewis because he didn't go the Stokely route. And I was like, wow. Yeah. He said that. Yeah, but um, <laughs> you know, and, and what's so deep about that is, yeah, they love John Lewis, but I mean, the man was beaten by police, you know, locked up. So it, it's kind of like a weird psychology where John Lewis was considered more moderate, so the establishment loves him more than Stokely Carmichael, who obviously was not one of those nonviolent mm-hmm. activists. But look what it did to him. And you know, I, I've, even, I've even made this point about Nelson Mandela that you know the way American politicians talk about Nelson Mandela now, you would tend to forget that up until 2008, Nelson Mandela was on the terrorist list in the United States. Wow. So you know, that, that's our thing too, and it's a very interesting psychology that you know white supremacists play where. They'll pit the, the supposed moderate or safe uh, black leader against the more radical one. But the thing is, they don't love either of them. I mean, we see this Mark Malcolm Mark national holiday, and he's seen as being, you know, um, I, I guess, you know, more, more uh, safe or more moderate type of leader. But I mean, he was treated horribly throughout his lifetime and then assassinated. But white people act like they love King. So, I, you know, I, just, <laughs> I make that point because I think. What they were doing with what, what Bill Clinton was doing with um, Kwame Ture and John Lewis is the same type of game that we see white supremacists play. Well, they're at, they'll act like they love the more moderate, you know, type of black um, leader, and the fact is, they really don't. They just they'll use that leader to te- try to neutralize the more militant movements. And I mean, we even Obama is an example of this. You know, as moderate as Obama was, as you know, willing to uphold American imperialism as he was, he got a lot of backlash from white people throughout the country, particularly the Republican Party. So, you know, I, I think that's, I see that as kind of like a, a, a type of uh, divide and conquer um, strategy that they've used against us. And, you know, a lot of people don't notice about Malcolm for the rest of his life. Malcolm picked up on this divide and conquer strategy. So he became less willing to criticize some of the more moderate civil rights leaders in the, the movement because Malcolm was kind of seeing how white supremacists will use more moderate leaders to try to neutralize you know, more militants. Leaders. So, you know, when you mentioned the Bill, Bill Clinton situation, I just, I, because, you know, you know or this, America acts like they love John Lewis now, but obviously when he was engaged in his activism, there was no love for Lewis or King or you know, any of those civil rights leaders who America pretends to love now. Yeah, that's, and that, uh, so every, every year on uh, Martin Luther King's birthday, white people, especially white politicians, even the... Um, even um, uh, uh, the FBI or the CIA were putting out uh, tweets and stuff saying "Happy Birthday, Martin Luther King!" Like what? Like you guys are yeah. like complicit in his death? You know what I mean? And you're right; it's it's a really sick game um, that they play in that aspect. And um, it brings this question up. So you know, we have people like uh, Malcolm. Um, uh, Kwame Turi, Kwame Nkrumah, Thomas Sankara. We have uh, Walt, brothers like Walter Rodney, um, even writers like C.L.R. James, who, whenever they diagnose the problem of Black people throughout the world, right, through um, the diaspora, including the continent, um, they spoke about not only what we consider or uh, call white supremacy today, they spoke about imperialism and in a lot of time in a lot of cases capitalism as well 
Um, and you know, uh, who is it? I want to say Lenin wrote the book that, uh, what that, uh, 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 imperialism is the highest form of capitalism, right? Um, whenever we are looking at these, um, oppressive nations, um, such as America, um, you know, uh, Europe, are we looking at, looking at it through the wrong lens if we're not looking at, everything that's going on through the eyes of, hey, these are imperialist nations. Doesn't matter who's in office, their job is to uphold imperialism. Like, what are your thoughts on that? <clears throat> yeah, I, I would um, definitely agree with that. I think we have to look at um, not just the, the individual, but the entire imperialistic capitalistic um, system. and. One of the things that's been very consistent throughout the Pan-African movement has been this critique of capitalism and this critique of imperialism. And you know, I've made this point that Marcus Garvey, who was, I had described himself as the capitalist, even he was very critical of you know, certain aspects of capitalism. So I think you know, throughout the history of a movement, our leaders, even leaders who had identified as capitalists, had recognized that um, the capitalistic system that we're dealing with is you know, a fundamentally unjust one. And I, I mentioned Eric Williams, who wrote capitalists and um, Slavery, and I think why that book is so important is that Eric Williams was pointing out that the capitalist system that we're talking about was built off of enslaving African peoples. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, this is a system that had its birth in our oppression and our subjugation. And I think, um, you know, it, it's very difficult to separate capitalism from you know the type of exploitation. And I, I made the point before that um, one of the things that we have to keep in mind with this with this um capitalistic system is that. It's a system that's been willing to ex uh, exploit and ex oppress even poor white people. So, you know, when we talk about um, racism or supremacy, we have to keep in mind that we're dealing with the people who are not only racist, but they're also willing to even sacrifice you know, their own. And, um, you know, one of the examples I'll mention of this is the, the world wars. I mean, think about the fact that these imperialistic European nations were so uh, not only so powerful, but so greedy in their desire to conquer the world that they eventually began to clash with each other and not once, but on two different occasions, they dragged the entire world into a global war. So, I mean, I think to me, that really sums up what we're dealing with when we're talking about imperialism. It's a system that's not only destructive towards African people, but also a self-destructive um, system as well. And we saw it with the world wars. I mean, to some extent, I think a lot of what we're seeing happening right now in America in terms of the crisis of you know, capitalism and the what I would say is you know, basically been a destruction and um, middle class to me that's American capitalism uh, essentially destroying itself so you know, and um, you know for me one of the arguments I make against this uh, integrationist assimilationist type of approach that some of us have is that when you look at you know, I mean I th and I think we should really study European history and you know study the people that have oppressed us and when you look at the history of European people they've always been a very self-destructive um, people the Roman Empire as powerful as the Roman Empire, Empire was it fell from the inside you know, right. uh, and I'll go back to the world as possible as those European um, imperial uh, colonist powers were. They fell from the inside. It was an eternal war in Europe. So I think when we really look at European history, when we understand the capitalist imperialistic system that Europeans have created, we have to understand that it's not just a system that's oppressed African people and Native Americans and Asians and other non-European people around the world. It's a system that's oppressed European people, and it's a system that's very self-destructive. It's a system that's constantly in a you know a state of crisis because it's just you know the greed of the system is um so so powerful that it's you know it's almost like there's no way to satisfy 
that greed and obviously understanding that we live on a planet with finite resources, there's only so much that you could take without giving back. And that's why we're seeing now even the environmental crisis that's being caused by capitalism just because that greed is um, so pervasive within, within the system. And the final point I'll make, you know, I mentioned integrationist position and um, there's a famous um, statement by, uh, by Dr. King when he was talking about how he feared that he'd integrated his people yeah. into a burning house. And I think, you know, that's something, and Malcolm in made the point uh, with the Nation of Islam, he said, you know, you don't integrate with a sinking ship. And I think we have to understand, well, once we understand that this is a very self-destructive system that is not only, you know, as I said, destructive towards us as, you know, black people, it's destructive towards white people. And, you know, as I mentioned before, it's even destructive towards the environment, you know, it's destructive towards the whole planet. Once we really understand how destructive that system is, I think, It'll, um, it'll destroy some of the illusions that some of us have about integrating into the system and wanting to become capitalist ourselves. You know, there's um, Jay-Z and a few other celebrities now are you know, touting black capitalism as a solution. If we just had a few more black millionaires, a few more black billionaires, maybe we'll solve the problem. And, you know, to me, I just, given the way the system is designed, I, I can't see anything but um, self-destruction for any African who decides to assimilate in that system. Yeah, I agree. Because first... We have to realize, like, how, how you brought up slavery being, um, like, the precursor to capitalism. Capitalism makes profit from the exploitation of workers. There's no bigger exploitation of work, of a, of a human, right, than um, slavery. Um, and then not only um, the dehumanization that came with that, right, and then fast forward to where we are now in 2020 and 2021, we saw, like, even the during COVID, during a pandemic where people were struggling to pay their rent. But I want to say the stat was like millionaires made like $5 billion. Like all the millionaires in America made like $5 billion during this time. And so to think that that's okay and that is self-sustaining is not, man. It, it, it That has to crumble. You know what I mean? There's no way to keep that going. Um, yes. Um, so it's self-destructive, but you know, our point I want to make too is, you know, just, just from a cultural perspective, I think you know one of the reasons why it's important to study African history is that the, 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 this capitalist system—that's not even the way we operated as the people. I was um, like to mention an interview that um, Ketchisweyo, he was a, a Zulu ruler, that he had an interview with a missionary, and he was asking questions like, you know, why is it you Europeans have so many people? in your country that's you know starving why don't you why aren't you able to feed everyone and he was asking questions like in your country does every man have um a plot of land to build a house so like he he just he couldn't understand why europeans had created a civilization where so many people were starving and hungry and so many people were homeless because you know his society his Zulu society was a society where you know people had the, the, the basics you know everyone had food everyone had you know enough land to build a house so no one was homeless so i think you know I would also like to contrast that, you know, traditional African society where at least the bare minimum, the bare, bare necessities for people were taken care of. People didn't have to worry about food and shelter. And contrast that with a European, you know, society that's been very cold and very harsh in, in, the, in that manner. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, in the news we've seen, especially the past two weeks, um, you know, what's been going on in Palestine, right? And then uh, we know within the history of, um, you know, our liberation struggle, we've had people like Malcolm, Kwame Terry, James Baldwin, you know, a lot of people speak up about what's going on out there. 
Um, and you know, nowadays, and I mean, I, and I understand the sentiment. Um, I don't necessarily agree, but I understand it. You know, some say that, Hey, um, that's their issue, right? Um, we have our own fight over here. Um, I'm not necessarily one of those people because I look at our issue as a global issue and imperialism anywhere is, um, especially to this level is something that I'm always invested in for one as a human being right I don't like to see people displaced from their home um children become you know becoming fatherless and motherless overnight you know what I'm saying it's just as I mean the just from a humanity aspect it's nothing that I could rock with right but um, what are your thoughts on, you know, what's going on out there and how it relates to us as black people? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I agree with your, your uh, view. And I, I definitely can understand on some levels why some people with this position of it's not our struggle. Um, you know, we have so many issues that we do. I think part of it, is, you know, I, I agree with your position that just on a human level, you know, you hate to see that happening to, to anyone. And, um, you know, I think some people... They defend that their position on Palestine and their position of not necessarily caring by saying we need to look at you know t take care of ourselves first. And Marcus Garvey was very famous for developing that racist type of ideology. But I think when people really look closely at the type of person Marcus Garvey was, you know, he, he supported Gandhi's struggle in India. He supported the Irish struggle for um, independence when the Nazis were uh, pressing Jews in Germany. Marcus Garvey spoke out. So I think. When you look at your know, Pan-African leaders, and you mentioned some of the ones that spoke out in Palestine, such as Kwame Ture and others, I think there's a very strong humanitarian impulse to the point where even someone like a Marcus Garvey or Kwame Ture, who are Pan-Africanists, who are primarily, primarily organizing and fighting for African people, they understood that you know, if an injustice is happening as a human being, you mm -hmm. want to take a stand and speak out against it. That just to, so you know, to me, just on alone, I think you know we should be you know, very sympathetic and supportive to the struggles of the Palestinian people. But on a deeper level, I think it's very misguided to take this position that you know what's happening between Israel and Palestine has nothing to do with African people. When the fact is, Israel has played you know has played a very detrimental role in um, Africa's development. Um, you know, many people aren't aware that. The coup that brought Idi Amin to power in Uganda was orchestrated by Israel because they wanted to get Milton Obute, who was the prime minister at the time, out of power. So Israel has constantly been interfering in African politics. I could tell you, just you know, from my experience being involved in the situation in Togo, Israel has been one of the strongest supporters of the dictatorship in Togo to the point where the dictatorship in Togo has started uh, digitally spying on lobbed activists and the equipment being used to spy on these people is is really you know it's really um, mm. uh, equipment. So. You know, to me, I think it's very misguided to you know act as though what's going on in Israel has nothing to do with African people when there's you know direction and even Kwame Ture. One of the reasons why Kwame Ture is you know so critical. Are you kidding? Yeah. Yeah. So what I was saying with Kwame Ture, one of the reasons why he was organizing against uh, Zionism because he recognized Zionism was actually uh, an obstacle for African uh, unity and liberation. And um, when he was working on building what he called the Black United Front among different Black organizations in the United States, he accused Zionists of being part of the effort to create division to break up that United Front. So I think 
you know, he and other Pan-African leaders recognize that not only is Israel oppressing the Palestinian people, but Israel is a white supremacist state that pursuing policies that, that are very central to African people, both on the continent and even in the United States. So I think, you know, for that reason alone, I think we, you know, it's definitely in our, our interest to really be more engaged in what's going on and be very critical of, you know, some certain things that Israel has been doing. And, you know, I make this point as well that, um, you know, there were Jewish people that um, participated in the slave trade. There were Jewish people that owned slaves as well. And I think, you know, so often, and Kwame Ture was accused of, accused of this, but I think so often when black people speak out against Zionism and speak out against Jewish racism, against black people, those exchanges are all shut down by claiming anti-Semitism yes. on the part of black people. And I mean, if, if we're being you know, real about history, anti-Semitism, that was, that's a European problem. You know, African people, we never, um, mm -hmm. we didn't trap Jewish people in ghettos. We didn't burn Jewish mm -hmm. people alive in um, gas chambers. So that's a European problem. I think right. as African people, we have to understand that, you know, Jews were part of, you know, um, part of the group of Europeans that oppressed us. You know, Jews were, as I said, involved in the slave trade. Um, before Zionists had, you know, colonized Palestine, uh, Theodore Herzl, the you know, man who's often regarded as the founder of Zionism, he had agreed to a plan to actually create the Jewish state in East Africa. Wow. So, um, yeah, so I think, you know, in my view as well, you know, I just want to make the point that I think, you know, very often these criticisms of Zionism or Jewish racism on the part of black people are shut down by accusing us of being anti-Semitic. And I think, you know, the, the fact is, as I said, anti-Semitism, that's a problem among European people. But where African people are concerned, Jews have been just as oppressed towards us as, you know, any, any other group of Europeans have been. Agreed. Yeah, yeah, totally. And... You know, I was even um, watching a video from a sister today and she was talking about, um, you know, uh, I didn't get a chance to see the whole thing, but it was talking about how, uh, you know, Jewish businessmen were going into the Congo and, and you know, making billions of dollars and, and oh, you know, with the you know, oppressive business tactics, you know, and, and the people in the Congo not receiving anything from the business uh, that they're doing over there. So yeah, you're right. I mean, it's not just, it's not just an isolated thing to what's happening in, you know, Palestine. It's, it, it definitely affects, you know, African people um, in the, on the continent and throughout the diaspora. They even had an um, article in one of the Palestinian newspapers about how the, the militarization of um, the Israeli police um, helps justify the militarization of American police. You know what I'm saying? Um, so, I mean, there's a connection right there. Um, you mentioned a lot of, uh, mentioned the work that you've been doing in, in Togo. Um, if you can, uh, tell us actually what's going on in Togo and, uh, and then about what some of the work that you're, that you're doing. So how I got involved in the situation in Togo is in 2017, there were you know, mass uprisings and protests in the country demanding an end to the dictatorship. Now, since 1967, Togo has been ruled by a dictatorship, and that dictatorship has been a single family, um, in a single family. Um, the father, he took power after a military coup, and he died, and then his son, you know, the military uh, swooped in and essentially um, installed his son in power. So for a lot of years, Togo has been ruled by a single family, and it's been very oppressive, very brutal, um, Dictatorship. So, 2017 people 
Yeah, so um, since 1967, Seton Yotoko has been under the rule of a single um, single family, the Nsingbe family. So in 2017, there were protests going on in Togo demanding an end to that dictatorship. And I was very inspired um, by by just the courage I saw among the Togolese people because the government was sending out the military to shoot and kill protesters. And it was a situation where no matter how many protesters they shot, the Togolese people kept coming out and kept protesting, kept demanding the liberation. So uh, I reached out to some of the activists that were involved in the, the struggle there. And some of the things that I've been engaged in to assist uh, with Togo, well, first with writing articles for the Huffington Post because, you know, considering that the dictatorship in Togo is actually the oldest neocolonial dictatorship that's been in power since 60, um, 67, you know, there wasn't. So one of the things that the activists were Togo bringing more attention to it, so I started writing articles in the Huffington Post to bring attention to what's been Going on there, I've been you know involved in other ways as well, such as you know trying to you know raise funds, um, logistics, logistical support as well in terms of you know assisting with developing certain strategies and tactics. But you know, for me, I think the most important uh, aspect of the work I've done is um, the, the articles that I was, I've been writing and trying to bring more attention to the struggle in Togo, and that's been not only useful from the perspective of bringing attention to what's been going on, but I was surprised to find out just how supportive the Togolese people were of the work I was doing. And it really meant a lot to the Togolese people to see that someone who wasn't from Togo was taking an interest in their struggle and showing support and writing about it, especially since, you know, as I said, it's not, I mean, first of all, Togo is a dirty French-speaking country, so it's very difficult to get a hold of information about Togo from English-speaking audiences. So it meant a lot to the Togolese people to see someone who, you know, can't even speak French, but is supporting that struggle and, uh, writing about it and it, it, it's it's been a very um very inspiring uh situation for me because you know i for me i just saw a group of african people fighting for their liberation and i wanted to get involved in that struggle and i've been i formed such a you know close bond to you know some, some of the people from togo that you know in my view i feel like i'm i've reconnected to some of my long lost family right. in west africa that's, that's how close yeah. i've become yeah. to people in togo yeah you did man you did and you know that's that's a beautiful thing man um um, you know, you've uh, you've written a book about Walter Rodney and uh, a few articles. Um, you know, to me, he's one of the most powerful intellectual activists uh, that we've ever seen. But he doesn't get talked about a lot outside of certain circles, outside of these circles. You know, um, what made Walter Rodney so powerful and important to the movement? I think there's many things that made him powerful and important. But if I have to point to a singular thing, I think. It was just his love for the African masses. Um, you know, my, in my book, uh, I mention often his work, The Groundings with My Brothers, where he talks about going to Jamaica and he would just sit and just, you know, talk with people in Jamaica. And he said he went to some of the poorest parts of Jamaica where people were just living in um, garbage dumps. And he makes the point that the government of Jamaica is, you know, so um, so cruel towards its citizens that it has the citizens living in garbage dumps. So that's where he would go to find people and have those um, discussions. In my book, I also mentioned the fact that, you know, Walter Rodney, he didn't drink very often, um, but he used to go to bars and he would sit down and he wouldn't go to the bars, just, you know, to drink. He'd go to the bars just to, you know, to talk to people and right. to meet the African masses wherever 
the words. I mean, obviously he was very brilliant intellectual, but you know, to me, what really makes Walter Rodney important was just his love of the African masses and his ability to connect with African people wherever he went in the world. You know, he was born in Ghana, but he in Jamaica he established such a close connection to the people of Jamaica that there was actually a riot in Jamaica when he was banned from um, the island. And then he went to Tanzania to establish the same type of connection. So, you know, Walter Rodney's love of the African masses was so profound that it seemed like wherever he went in the world, he was able to establish that connection to the African people there. So, you know, t- to me, when I started doing the research um, to write that book, that's something that definitely stood out to me about Walter Rodney. It's the same, you know, we talked before about Malcolm X. It's, it's the same, you know, type of thing I see in Malcolm X and, yeah, you know, to me, when we talk about the, these leaders, you know, it's important to understand that yes, these were very brilliant and courageous men. But I think you know what really drove them was that love of the African masses and that connection to African people, and it was definitely there in you know, Walter Rodney's work. Yeah, and I think that's something that you know, whenever that connection, whenever you, whenever the people that you are um, striving to teach and educate and liberate or help to liberate themselves, and whenever you can make that connection with them and, and you know, a lot of times we see people who consider themselves modern day activists. It's not a, it's, there's not a connection with the people. Um, and, you know, we just, it's, it's, it's as if um, they're doing this as a job. You know what I mean? And f- the reason people love people like Walter Rodney, people like Malcolm, even people like Martin, is because you knew that they loved the people and they were sincere in their love for the people. And so, yeah, I, I mean, that's definitely a, a powerful aspect of, you know, just how Walter Rodney saw things. Um, you recently, and, you know, you are an author of 19 books. Um, salute to that, you know what I'm saying? Um, and you uh, posted that your, I believe your 20th book will be um, uh, a book called Eshu, Legba, and the Devil, right? And I uh, can't wait to get yeah. I can't wait to get that. And, um, you know, within, you know, it, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with how hoodoo fo- uh, culture formed in um, the American South, you know, um, during slavery and after slavery. And in researching hoodoo culture, I came to see that Eshu, in a lot of cases, would be looked at and propagated by Europeans as the devil, as, you know, as if it was a Christian Thing when there is no devil in these um, African religions, um, if you can, what uh, what you know inspired you to write this book and want to and want to go down and and you know articulate this history and, and those connections? Yeah, so um, yeah, that, that's the, that's the title of the book is um it's a reference to one of the many essays. So you know this book as many of my books, it's just a collection of different essays on different topics. So the, the inspiration is just, you know, many of these different um, topics I've been really thinking about and I decided to, to write about them. One of the essays in that book is actually uh, an essay on the Queen Charlotte situation that we discussed wow. before. But, um, but yeah, so the situation between the issue, uh, Legba and the devil, what that's about in the book is, um, and, and I always love talking about this because it's something that, Many people who are fans of the blues really didn't know about, but I'm sure you, you've heard about the legend of Robert Johnson and certain blues artists selling souls, you know, at the crossroads to the devil to get um, the music built. Most people hear that story and they think it's some kind of deal that they're making with the satanic devil mm-hmm. of Christianity. But, you know, as I was doing research, I was looking more into the situation and I realized the devil that they're talking about is not the Christian devil. That's mm-hmm. actually a issue. Um, 
Legbo, because when you look at the description of the, this devil, first of all, it's the devil at crossroads. The crossroads is where Yeshu and Legbo stand. And, you know, for those who don't know, Yeshu and Legbo are um, very, they're different, but also very similar. West African deities are often conflated together because of the similarities. And one of the similarities is that they're both guardians of the crossroads. So that's the first thing that caught my attention is that, you know, this devil standing at the crossroads where, you know, Legbo and Yeshu stand. But then, when you go even deeper, the description of what this devil looks like, the devil at the crossroads is always described as an old man who walks with a limp. Now, Legba is often depicted as an old man who walks with a limp as well. So, uh, you know, as I was doing the research on, on this, I realized, you know, as I said, this is not the Christian devil. What they were really, you know, describing was Yeshu um, Legba. And what was very interesting to me is that, you know, Yeshu was, you know, often been depicted as being, you know, satanic, as being the devil among Europeans. And it was, it was interesting to see how Africans who had lost their language to the point that they didn't have the original name for that deity still was able to keep the concept of that deity alive in their culture. So Yeshu Legba became the devil. And I mentioned in the book that, um, you know, Yeshu Legba, that, that, um, those deities, they're found throughout, you know, the diaspora in the Caribbean in South America and in the United States. You know, it was interesting to see how that character transformed. And I don't write about this in... Um, my book, but one of the things that's been very fascinating to me about studying African survivals in the United States is that, you know, in many ways, Africans in the United States lost more of their culture than Africans in the Caribbean and South America did, but the survivals are still there and they were just transformed in very unique ways. And another example I could give is the Anansi stories that are told in West Africa. Where I'm from in Ghana, that character is known as Anansi. In the American South, there was Aunt Anansi you know, stories. So it's not the 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 name has been you know kind of um what emphasized was, a little bit but the in the American South on Nancy wow but yeah on the spider so it's interesting to you know look at those cultural connections among you know Black Americans to see that even though the names might be different for example you know like I said it's not called Legba in the United States it's called the Devil that cultural connection to Africa is you know still there and you know to me I think that really demonstrates the strength of our cultural connection to uh, Africa and the, the Hudu culture that you're talking about, all of that is rooted in African culture. And it's very interesting to me how, you know, so much of us are aware of these things, but we don't even know about it. For example, the term mojo, that, you know, so many of us, I mean, we know that we're mojo, you know, especially from the Austin Powers movies, but we don't know that that has a, a strong cultural connection to Africa. So, you know, to me, it's, it's fascinating to see the different ways that African culture survived in the diaspora in ways that, Many of us aren't even aware of, and another example that I'll give because really the dozens, you know, the, the verbal game that's played right. among Black Americans. So, so many Black Americans are surprised to find out when I mention, you know, in the Caribbean where I'm from, we have a similar type of game. It's called um, Extempo. Extempo part of um, the Calypso art form in the Caribbean, and then we go to West Africa and other parts of Africa. You see similar type of verbal games being played and as I said, I always like mentioning it because you know black Americans, you know, when I, when I mentioned are shocked to find out that it's not just something that black Americans do, it's you know, a, it's a wider African, you know, uh, tradition. Yeah, that's man, and I always love hearing about that because it's amazing. There's a lot of stuff that we do and we thought that, you know, hey, it might have originated here, but it has a, a bigger history. Even um my grandmother, she uh she told me a story. Um and quite a few times about her brother, which would be, you know, one of my great uncles, um, whenever she was a child, um, you know, went to the crossroads 
and um, and you know she, she laughs about it and said, "Oh, he heard the devil, right?" But I know what she's saying. She she doesn't even know that what she's telling me is something with that came from Africa. You know what I mean? And I, and I yeah. just find that uh, very very fascinating. Um, and so I want to say uh, I definitely appreciate you for for coming on the show man um it's been uh it's been really really dope um i want to salute you again for the work that you do for everybody and for our liberation whether it's you know writing just just everything that you do man and um for those who are interested in you know uh, uh hearing more of what you have to say how can they find your books and how can they find you on social media Yes, um, my books are all available on Amazon for anyone who's interested to, to, to check them out. The book, both as paperback and I also have several um, Kindle versions for anyone who prefers a digital copy. As far as social media, I'm probably more active on Facebook. So you can find me on Facebook. Um, yeah, my uh, Facebook page name is uh, Dwayne Long, Omawali, Pan-African writer. Also on Twitter as well, my handle is um, the Omawali. I'm trying to get better at um, you know, using mm -hmm. Twitter and it wasn't too long ago. I couldn't even remember my Twitter Twitter handle. That's how you know infrequently I've been on Twitter. But I'm getting better at you know. Yeah, you got you got to get active on there, man, because they need to they need to know um, they need to hear what you got to say, man. And um, so I definitely appreciate you for coming on, man. And you have a good night, brother. All right, you too. Thanks for inviting me. Really appreciate yeah. it.